Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter number 2. And of course, last Wednesday night, we began uh, the, a new book study. Uh, and on Wednesday nights, we like to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. And we started the book of Job. We went through Job chapter number 1. And tonight, uh, we're going to continue to Job 2. If you weren't here for the Job 1 sermon, I'd encourage you to catch it on our website or our YouTube channel. And uh, today, uh, I want to begin, before I dig into the chapter, I want to begin by just dealing with an issue that's often uh, brought up uh, from the book of Job, and I didn't have time to deal with it in chapter 1, but I have some time in chapter 2, I believe, so I want to deal with it. If you look at verse number 1 there, the Bible says this, Job, Job chapter 2 and verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present themselves before the Lord. And in the book of Job, you have this reference here to the sons of God, and uh, there is a doctrine that's promoted by dispensationalists that will teach that uh, the sons of God are actually angels, and there is a reason for this, and, and I'm not going to delve into all of it. Uh, it's more than I could cover in, in an introduction. It would require an entire sermon. In Genesis chapter 6, you have a mention and a reference to the sons of God. Even in Job 38, there's a reference to the sons of God, and we'll deal with that when we get to that chapter in Job 38. But you have this reference to the sons of God, and uh, people will often go to this passage and say, see, the sons of God are angels because, uh, you know, this is in the Old, and again, this is a dispensational teaching, so say this is in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, uh, uh, Christians, when they die, they go to heaven, but in the Old Testament, they went to Abraham's bosom, and there, there's all these things that go along with it. Uh, I want to just show you why we don't believe that at Verity Baptist Church, uh, there's, and I, and I want to quickly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to quickly just give you four reasons why we don't believe that the sons of God are angels in this passage or in any passage. Now, first of all, I want you to notice there in Job 2.1, it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, notice these words, came also among them. Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, if you go uh, back to Job chapter 1 and look at verse 6, you'll see the same uh, wording. Job chapter 1 and verse 6, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And, and I want you to notice that here the Bible is telling us that Satan came also among them. The words came also mean in addition to, meaning that the sons of God here came, and then Satan came in addition to, came also among them. So there's a separation there showing you that Satan is not a son of God. And this is what the dispensationalists will, will teach. When they go to Genesis chapter 6 and it talks about the sons of God, they'll say those are fallen angels. Now here's the thing, if fallen angels are the sons of God, then that means Satan is a son of God, because Satan is a fallen angel. And by the way, this is what the Mormon church teaches. The Mormon church teaches that Satan is a son of God, and that Satan and Jesus are brothers. But this is not what the Bible teaches. So if you want to kind of know why is it that we don't believe this, well, number one, you see that in this chapter, and in chapter one, there is a difference made. It says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them meaning in addition to. This is actually something 
that um, Brother Stuckey pointed out to me, and he uh, sent it to me, and I, I thought it was interesting. Because if, if Satan was a son of God, why would it have to tell you that he came in addition to the sons of God, that he came also among them? There's another reason why uh, we don't believe that these uh, sons of God are angels, and it is uh, because of this. Now, keep your place there in the book of Job. That's our text for tonight. But go with me, if you would, to the New Testament book of John, John chapter number 1. You've got, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the book of John. John chapter number 1. And these dispensationalists, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll teach all these this sci-fi, you know, super interesting, just not biblical stuff about the sons of God coming down from heaven and impregnating these women in Genesis chapter 6, and then there's these, you know, creatures and these cyclops and all this craziness. But the problem, you say, what's wrong with that? The problem with it is that none of it's in the Bible. And the only way that you can come, uh, come uh, get that from the Word of God is if you're reading a commentary or you've got some extra biblical material. I want you to notice the Bible says this. You say, why, why don't we believe that the sons of God are angels? Well, number one, because Satan came in also among them. He came in addition to the sons of God. So there the Bible is clearly making a distinction between the sons of God and Satan. Satan is not a son of God. Fallen angels are not the sons of God. The other reason why we don't believe that the sons of God here are angels is because of the fact that the phrase sons of God is always in the Bible, is always in reference to believers. John chapter 1, verse 12, notice what the Bible says, but as many as received him, to then give you power to become the sons of God. When you and I got saved, when we received Christ as our Savior, we became uh, sons of God, the Bible says, even to them that believe on his name. Go to 1 John chapter 3, if you would. If you start at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you head backwards, you have Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John. Notice 1st John chapter 3 and verse 1. Look, throughout the Bible, it is saved people, it is believers who are referred to as the sons of God. 1st John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So notice, in the Bible, and I'm just showing you a couple examples here, throughout the Bible, sons of God are always believers. We are the sons of God. Those who receive, uh, the Bible says, as many as received him, to them give you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his uh, name. But further than that, let me just show you this. Go to the book of Hebrews. You're there in, in, in 1 John. So if you keep going backwards, you're going to go past 2 and 1 Peter into the book of Hebrews. Why don't we believe that the sons of God are, uh, are angels? Number one, because Satan came also, meaning in addition to the sons of God. So there's a distinction there. He is not the son of God. Number two, because the phrase son of God throughout the Bible always refers to believers in the Bible. But point number three is this, because angels are never referred to as sons of God in the Bible. In fact, God goes out of his way to tell us that he is never referred to an angel as a son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, notice verse 4. Now, we could read the entire chapter, uh, starting at verse 1. I don't have time for that. You can do that on your own if you'd like to get the context. But this is God speaking, and he's basically explaining 
how Jesus is better than. And he does this through the book of Hebrews. He explains how Jesus is better than the angels, how Jesus is better than Moses, how Jesus is better. And then he talks about how the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Now, I want you to notice what he says here in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. And he's making this point that Jesus is better than the angels. Hebrews 1.4, he says this, being made so much better than the angels. Again, in reference to Jesus. Being made so much better than the angels. Keep in mind, Jesus is the Son of God, right? So, they say, oh no, the sons of God are angels. Well, we have Jesus, the Son of God, and it says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And I want you to notice, because he's going to ask a rhetorical question here. He says, because he's making the point that Jesus is better than the angels. So in order to make that point, he asks this question. He says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And what he, he's making the point saying, Jesus is better than the angels, because he said of Jesus, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And he says he's better than the angels, because I've never said that to an angel. That's the point that he's making. He says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And, and then he says this, to make the point again, he says, And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's saying, to which of the angels have I ever said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And the answer is, to none of the angels. He's never said that. The whole point is that he's never called an angel the son of God. He's never referred to and told uh, an angel that he's their father. So, number one, Satan came in also, the Bible says, came also among them, in addition to the sons of God. So there's a differentiation. The phrase, the Son of God, number two, is always in reference to believers. Number three, Hebrews tells us that angels are never referred to as the sons of God. And number four, let me just give you a quick, and another, a fourth point in regards to that. Go back to the book of Job, if you would. Go to Job chapter four. Just number four is this. You know, how do we know that the sons of God in Job one and two are not angels? Is because of this. Angels are actually mentioned elsewhere in the book of Job, and they're referred to as angels. Job chapter 4, look at verse 18. Behold, he put not trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. So notice, if if you say, no, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the sons of God are angels, you know, he's not calling them angels, he's calling them the sons of God. Well then, in chapter 4, why is he calling them angels? Why doesn't he say, "And and his sons of God he charged with folly? But I want you to notice that angels are mentioned elsewhere in the book of Job, and they're referred to as angels. So you say, well then, what are the sons of God in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2? The sons of God in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the same as they are everywhere in Scripture. They're just believers. And you say, well, that goes against what I learned in Bible college, because in Bible college I was told that, uh, that you know, dispensationalism teaches that they go somewhere else, uh, they, they go down to hell, they teach this, this teaching of Abraham's bosom, and they teach that Old Testament believers actually went down to hell as opposed to going to heaven, and you say, this goes against my belief. Well, wait a minute, we must always allow the Bible to trump our beliefs. Say, I was taught that Old Testament saints didn't go to heaven, but then you have Job chapter 1 and 2 telling you that the sons of God are in heaven. What are you going to go with? Hey, we're Baptists. The Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. You say, what are we going to go with? We're going to go with the Bible. So the sons of God, always of God. And look, and if you study the Old Testament, it's clear. 
The Bible says Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind and he went up to heaven. Enoch was transfigured and he went up. In the, in the Bible, you find Old Testament saints going to heaven. So look, dispensationalism is a fraud. The teaching of dispensationalism is, is wrong. Look, and, and dispensation teaches, it tries to make all these changes. In the Old Testament, people were saved different than the New Testament. In the Old Testament, people went somewhere else than they went in the New Testament. This is false. Salvation is the same Old Testament and New Testament. Heaven and hell is the same Old Testament and New Testament. There is no such thing as Abraham's bosom. There is no such thing as purgatory. Abraham's bosom is a body part, all right? And uh, so, so the sons of God, you say, what are the sons of God here? They're the same as anywhere else in the Bible. It's believers in heaven who are going in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints who have died, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, the Bible says. They're in heaven presenting themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. He came in addition to them because he is not one of them. So that's all just by way of introduction. I just want to deal with that because I didn't have time to deal with it uh, last week. But, you know, the sons of God, we do not believe, are angels in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. And I give you four reasons um, from the Bible why that is. Because he came in addition to, because the sons of God is always in reference to believers, because angels are never referred to as the sons of God, and because angels are mentioned as angels elsewhere in the book of Job. Now, go, go back to Job chapter 2. And let me explain to you what we're going to talk about tonight. And it's this. In Job chapter 2, because we went through every verse of Job chapter 1 last week. And we walked through it and dealt with it. And I want you to notice that in Job chapter 2, what we have is basically round 2 of Job's trials. Job chapter 1 was round 1. And Job comes out looking great. And then Job chapter 2 is round 2. And what we see in this chapter, what, what jumps out at me is that there's these two statements made about Job. One is God making a statement about Job, and it is a commendation in regards to how well Job is doing. And then the other one is Job's wife making a statement about Job, and it is a condemnation about Job or a criticism about Job. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 1. The Bible says this. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And by the way, let me just say this. Whenever God is working, the devil's at work too. Whenever God is doing something, Satan is there to oppose. So Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, when, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, notice here in verse 3, because this sounds very familiar to chapter 1. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and he cheweth evil. And I want you to notice, he, this is now the third time that God has said this about Job. But in this chapter, he adds a phrase. He says this, and still. Now I want you to notice that word still. In fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible or taking notes in your Bible, I encourage you to underline that word or circle that word still. He says, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him. And he says this, without cause. And by the way, we know that Job was a righteous man. We know that Job was an upright man. 
We know that Job had not done anything to bring this upon him because here even God is saying that Satan had moved, he says, Thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. There was not a reason for me to destroy him. Uh, it was just, you wanted, you know, the accusation came that he would curse me if I took away all these blessings. And God says, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. I want you to notice in verse 4 we see Satan's second accusation. Because remember, he's the accuser of the brethren. Look at verse 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And by the way, let me just say this. I, I think Satan's wrong here. Obviously, Satan's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a liar from the beginning. But, you know, I honestly believe that there's many uh, parents who would give their life for their children and, and who would rather, you know, have sickness come upon them than to lose his children. Here, Job is make, here Satan's making this accusation about Job, and he's saying, yeah, we lost all his finances, he lost all his kids, but you know what? Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Well, we're going to find out that that's not true about Job. Notice verse 5, But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So basically, the accusation from Satan is this. You allowed me to take everything from him, and he still didn't curse your face, but if you allowed me to destroy his body, if you allow me to get him sick, if you allow me to bring sickness upon his body, then he's going to curse you, curse thee to thy face. Notice God gives a second permission, verse 6, and the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand. But again, we see the restraint of God, but save his life. God says, you can do what you want, but don't kill him. You're not allowed to kill him. And it, look, it, it ought to be uh, uh, an encouragement to us that Satan has to Follow the limits that God places on him. Notice verse 7. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a pot shirt, and that's a broken piece of uh, a ceramic material, to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Notice verse number 9. Then said his wife unto him. And I think we all wish that there would come an encouraging word here. But unfortunately, that is not the case. There, there comes a criticism of Job. There comes a condemnation of Job. And, and by the way, let me just say this. You know, preachers like to beat up on Job's wife, and I'm going to beat up on Job's wife in a little bit as well. But let me just say this. Keep in mind, she just lost all her children as well. And she's just lost all her material uh, 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 security as well. And she's going through this trial with her husband as well. And I want you to notice what Job's wife says. Verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Does thou, and I want you to notice this word, she says, Still retain thine integrity? And if you don't mind writing your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that word, still, or Circle that word, still. Does thou still retain thine integrity, she asks? Then she says this, curse God and die. She says, curse God and die. And by the way, I, I, I will say this. I believe that Job's wife was a godly wife. And I think that she was going through a difficult time here, and she said some things that she probably shouldn't have said. And, and I want you to just notice this in verse 10. I want you to notice how Job responds to her. He's, the Bible says in verse 10, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women who speaketh. Now I want you to notice that Job's response is kind of saying, This is not how you normally talk. 
You're not speaking like what you would normally say. You know, I, I honestly don't think that Job could have done the things that he did before Job chapter 1. Could have been the success that he was. Could have raised his children the way he did. And, and just having some, you know, bitter, angry, busybody of a wife. I'm sure that Job's wife was a godly woman. And here we're just seeing her at her worst. And Job even says, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaking. He says, you're not talking like you normally talk. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And that's quite a question. You know, when we're going through difficult times, when we're going through hard times, we should ask ourselves, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Then the Bible says this, and all this did Job, did, and all this did not Job sin with his lips. But I want to highlight, I want to highlight these two words. I want to preach to you tonight on just this, 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 this one word. And it's the word still. Because though there are differences between Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, the major difference that I see is this commentary that's given about Job by God and by his wife. And I would say this, if there's any two people in this world that know you the best, uh, gentlemen, it is probably God and your wife, right? If there's any two people in this world that know you, uh, ladies, it's probably God and your husband. And we're, here we have the two most intimate people with Job, both make a very similar statement. One was given as a commendation, one was given as a condemnation, but they both said this, does thou still retain thine integrity? And I believe that what God is highlighting for us, it's this. In Job chapter 1, we learn about what it looks like, or what at least it should look like, when a godly Christian is faced with a difficult trial. We see Job in chapter 1 handle trials and troubles when they come. But in chapter 2, what we see is how to continue through trials and troubles that have come. See, in chapter 1, we see him face the trials when they come. In chapter 2, we highlight how to continue through the trials that have come. Does thou still retain thine integrity? God says, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. I want to give you three thoughts tonight, and we'll do it as quickly as we can. Three thoughts in regards to what Job was still doing. And I think uh, they're, they're highlighted here in this passage. Number one, and I'd encourage you to write these down and take these, take these notes. And look, you might, be, you might be sitting here tonight and saying, man, my life is wonderful right now. I'm not going through any trials. I'm not going through anything difficult. You know, I don't really need the book of Job. You know, I, why, why don't we do Philippians or something a little funner, you know, something a little nicer, something a little more upbeat. But I will say this. The Christian life is a series of storms. You are either in a storm or you're coming out of a storm, or you're getting ready to go into a storm. So even if you're here tonight, you say, man, it's smooth sailing right now. Things are going well right now. I will tell you this. There is coming a storm in your horizon. There is coming a trial, a tribulation, a difficult time. So even if you say this doesn't apply to me, write it down because you're going to need it. Yea, all they that shall live godly, that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the Bible says. So you're going to go through difficult times. And in this passage, we learn how Job went, how he lived, what he did, what Job still did while going through a trial. Number one, please write this down. Job was still waiting on God. When we look at Job's life and we consider what is it that Job did? during this difficult time in his life. 
What we learn is that Job was waiting. During times of trouble, we ought to wait. During times of trouble, we need to stop. During times of trouble, and I want you to notice, the Bible highlights for us a couple of things that Job did. First of all, I want you to notice that he said nothing. Look at verse 10. But he said unto her, notice the emphasis. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, or shall we not receive evil? Notice what the Bible highlights for, this, for us. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Have you ever thought about the fact that Job, who's a great hero of the faith, Job, who comes out looking like a superstar in this book, Job, who I'm sure all of us are going to want to meet in heaven one day and talk to him, what Job did was he did nothing. How Job won the victory is by not saying anything. What happened was, or if you remember the accusation was, that if you do these things to him, God, if you allow these things to happen, he will curse thee to thy face. The victory in Job's life was that he did not sin with his lips. In fact, God contrasts for us the fact that his wife says, curse God and die, and he says, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. But the Bible says, in all this did Job did not Job sin with his lips? Look at verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. So they sat down with him. This is the three friends. And we're going to talk about them a lot over the next several, many weeks. In verse 13, the Bible says this. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. And notice what the Bible says. None spake a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was very great. And by the way, let me just say this. In Job chapter 2, his three friends are still pretty good friends. They came to comfort him. They came, as we'll see here in a minute, to mourn with him. And the Bible says they sat down with him for seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word. You know, Job, and, and by the way, let me just say this, and we'll develop it as we go through. I do not believe that Job sinned in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but I do believe, and we'll talk about it as we get uh, through the book of Job, that Job did end up saying some things he shouldn't have said. And God even rebukes him for it, even though Job's still the hero, Job's still, uh, you know, God's man in the book. God rebukes Job for some of the things that he said in the book. Let me just say this, all of them got into trouble when they started speaking. In fact, I will say this, most of us get into trouble when we start speaking. The Bible says even a fool is counted wise when you keep your, your lips closed. So here we have Job's friends, and they sat down with him. Upon the ground, seven days, seven nights, and none spake a word. Look at verse 22 of Job chapter 1. Notice what the Bible highlights. Uh, uh, Job chapter 1 and verse 22. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What does it mean to charge? It means to accuse. You ever heard of somebody being charged with a crime? What, what, are they, what, what's, what does that mean? They're being accused of doing something. The Bible says that Job sinned not. How did he stop from sinning? By not accusing God foolishly, by not charging God foolishly. Let me say this. When going through a time of trial, you ought to wait. You ought to stop. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means this, say nothing. Job didn't say anything. In fact, the, the, the one main thing that Job did right was that he didn't say anything. He just kept his mouth shut. I want you to notice, secondly, not only did Job say nothing, but I want you to notice that Job did nothing. 
Look, look back at Job chapter 2 and verse 13 again. So they sat down with him upon the ground. Notice, seven days and seven nights. I mean, think about that. This actually happened. Job and three of his grown friends sat there for seven days, said nothing, and did nothing. What is it that Job was still doing that God refers to, that his wife refers to? Well, what we see is that Job was still waiting on God. And look, during times of trouble, we need to wait. What does that mean? It means we say nothing. It means we do nothing. Let me give you a couple thoughts on this idea of waiting. Keep your place there in Job. We're going to come back to it. Go to the book of Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. You've got Genesis and Exodus. Let me just say this. It is usually during times of trial. It is usually during times of trouble. It is usually during times of uh, difficult seasons in our lives that we make major mistakes in our life. I would say this, and if you were honest with yourself and you think through your life, you would uh, 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 agree with this, and it's this. Usually the biggest regrets that we make in life are done in a season of chaos. When things are not going well, when things are not going our way, when things are not, when it's not smooth sailing, it's usually during a time of the storm that we decide to jump ship at the worst time. And if you say, well, I want to be like a Job. I want people to say of me like they said of Job. Look at the patience of Job. Well, let me say this. Job was still waiting on God during times of trial, during times of trouble, during times of difficulty. This is the times when we need to stop and we need to wait. Say, what does that mean? It means you say nothing. It means you do nothing. Now, let me just explain to you why it's so hard for us to wait. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like to wait. I'm very Im- impatient. You know, probably like most of you, we, we, we are a microwave generation, right? We are a drive-through generation. We don't like to wait for anything. And, you know, I would say this, it's hard for us to wait because we'd rather try to take care of things ourselves. Isn't that true? I mean, look at Exodus 14. I want you to notice this story. I always thought this was an interesting story. Exodus 14, this is one of the great uh, miracles of the Bible, the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 14 and verse 13, here you have the children of Israel leaving the Promised Land, they find themselves in front of the Red Sea, and now Pharaoh and his army is pursuing after them. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, fear ye not. Moses is speaking to them on behalf of God. This is what God said. Fear ye not. Notice these two words. Stand still. And if it was me, I'd be like, what? Stand what? You, you meant build boats, right? Which was build boats? You, you, you know, you heard from God, right? I mean, Moses, you understand this, right? We, we've got the Red Sea. We've got Pharaoh coming to kill us. You're going to tell us what God said to do. God said, build boats. God said, build canoes. God said, build a stinking bridge. I mean, God said, do something. And you want us to stand still? Here's what Moses says. He says, fear you not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. And look, verse 14 is why we don't like to stand still. Verse 14, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. You know why we don't like to stand still? Because we'd rather try to get it done than wait on God to do it. We'd rather defend ourselves than wait on God to defend us. We'd rather make a way 
then wait for God to make a way on our behalf. You say, well, why should I wait? And I would say this, you know, we should wait because often God asks us to wait right before he tells us to go forward. I mean, look at verse 15. I've always thought this was interesting. In verse 13, he says, stand still. And then in verse 15, he says, and the Lord said unto Moses, right? And the Lord said unto Moses, what for Christ thou unto me? Now, please understand, you know, because you, you read this and you think to yourself, man, God, are you just kind of messing with Moses? Are you messing with these people? They're sitting there. They've, they've got uh, uh, the, the Red Sea on one side. They've got impending danger coming. They're sitting there, you know, panicking, crying unto you, and you say, stand still. And then they stand still, yet they're still praying as they should. And the Bible says, the Lord said unto Moses, what for Christ thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. And of course, you know the story. Moses parts the Red Sea, and they go forward. You say, you say why, why did God tell them to go forward? Often, I believe this. I believe often God is waiting on giving us the orders to go forward until we can first trust him enough to stand still. You say, oh, God is not giving me the impulse to go forward. Maybe it's because you haven't learned to stand still yet. You say, what was Job still doing? Go back to the book of Job, if you would. Well, I want you to notice that Job was still waiting. He said nothing. He did nothing. Let me tell you something. It's difficult to wait. It's hard to wait. But there's a benefit to wait. The Bible says this, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall, if they shall walk and not be weary, they shall run and not faint. The Bible says when we wait upon the Lord and we allow God to do what God is going to do, then God will speak on our behalf. He'll fight on our behalf. He'll make a way on our behalf. Pastors have a tendency to quit. I don't know if you know that. If you've lived a Christian life long enough, go back, go, go back to Job if you would. You'll find that pastors have a tendency to quit and leave churches. In fact, we're told that the average pastor doesn't stay more than five years at any given church. And one time when I was new in ministry, I was listening to a pastor who had been in ministry for decades. And he said this. He said this about himself and he was asking those of us in the audience to make this decision. He said, I have decided to never leave a church during a low time. He said, I've decided to never leave a church during a low time. And, and this pastor believed this, and, you know, it's up for debate, but he believed that there was times when God may call a pastor to a different place in a different location. And, and I think that's true. I think there may be a time when, when God pushes and, and God opens doors and God does those things. But he said, I've decided to never leave a church during a low time. You know, it's great advice for all of us, not just pastors. You know, we, we all go through times of discouragement. Sometimes people ask me, they'll ask, Pastor, have you ever thought of quitting? Have you ever thought of resigning? And I always respond the same way. You mean this week? You know, like, uh, you know, we all go through difficult times. But during times of trial, during times of difficulty, during times when things are not going our well, uh, our way, what we learn from Job is this, that we should still wait on God. I want you to notice a second thing here. Go back to Job chapter 2, if you would, look at verse 11. I said, number one, tonight, Job was still waiting on God. Number two, I want you to notice that Job was still worshiping God. Job was still worshiping God. And I want you to notice his friends. And look, they didn't start being bad until chapter three. In chapter two, they're still pretty good friends. 
And I want you to notice what they came to do. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Neamathite, for they had made an appointment together, notice these words, to come to mourn with Job and to comfort him. I want you to notice that they came to mourn with Job. And keep in mind, Job has lost everything. He's lost his children, ten children, ten funerals, ten gravesites. And they came to mourn with Job. And it, that's, a, that's understandable, isn't it? That someone would go through a time of mourning at this time in their life? That Job would be mourning? But I want you to notice, here's what's interesting. They came to mourn with Job. It was the appropriate thing to do. It was the right thing to do. It's what you would expect anyone would be doing. But I want you to notice that Job was not mourning. Go back to Job chapter 1, look at verse 20. Remember when all this happened in Job's life, all the trials came. Notice what the Bible says, Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and mourned. Is that what it says? No, the Bible says, and worshipped. And worshipped. See, I want you to notice, not only was Job still waiting on God, but I want you to notice, secondly, that Job was still worshiping on God. Worshiping God. You say, what's, what's the difference? Don't miss this. Mourning is inward focused. Isn't that true? And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, when we lose a loved one, we mourn. What is that? It's us processing through our emotions. It's us processing through our griefs. It's us dealing with our hurt and our emotion. Mourning is inward focus. But I want you to notice, Job was not mourning. Job was worshiping. So what's the difference? Mourning is inward focus. Worshiping is God focus. Mourning is how I feel, what I'm going through, what I'm dealing with. Job was focused on God. And here's what I'm telling you. You say, how do I survive a trial? Well, you must still wait on God, but you must still worship God. You must put your focus on God. Job, his friends came to mourn with him, and that was a good thing. But Job was not mourning. His focus was not inward. Job was worshiping. His focus was on God. In fact, I think it's interesting if you notice a passage. In fact, go back to Job chapter 1 just real quickly and look at verse 14. I want you to notice something in your Bible, and you can maybe underline these words as well. I want you to notice how everything was falling apart in Job's life. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 14. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding besides them, and the Sabians, I want you to notice this word, the Sabians fell upon them. Underline that word if you don't mind. The Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Notice verse 16. While he was just speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen. You see that word fallen? Underline that word fallen. The fire of God is fallen from heaven and had burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Notice verse 17. While he was just speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell. You see the word fell there? Underline that word fell. Fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was just speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it, there's the word, fell 
And I would fall upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone. To tell you, the Bible says in verse 15 that the Sabaeans fall upon Job. The Bible says in verse 16 that the fire of God is fallen upon Job. The Bible says in verse 17 that the, uh, uh, that, that, that the Chaldeans fall upon uh, Job. The Bible says in verse 19 and verse 18 and 19, it says that his children were eating, and the house fell. Everything in Job's life was falling apart. You ever been there? You ever just felt like everything's falling apart around you? Now, I want you to notice, here's what's interesting. Verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his, fa- his head, notice these words, and fell down upon the ground in worship. Let me ask you something. When everything's falling apart around you, what do you fall over? When everything's falling around you. What is it that you fall upon? The Bible says this, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You say, how is it that Job was able to make it through this? It was while everything was falling apart. He was falling on God. You say, what is it that Job was still doing? Job was still waiting. What is it that Job was still doing? Job we're still worshiping. And sometimes, let me tell you, when you're waiting, all you can do is worship. I'm hesitant to even tell you this, and I'll just go ahead and tell you vaguely, but there's a situation that my wife and I have been praying about for some time. In fact, it's one of the things that has made it on our daily prayer list, something we pray about every day. And this was important enough for me that I even reached out to some pastor friends and asked them if they would pray with us. And I'm not ready to talk about it publicly. I, I may talk about it publicly at some point, just not today. But I asked people to pray. And we prayed about it. And there's basically three outcomes to the situation. There was an outcome that was good for us. There was an outcome that was neutral. And there was an outcome that was bad. In fact, the outcome that was bad was really the worst possible outcome that could have came from this whole situation. And yesterday we found out that that was what happened. My wife and I were driving back from somewhere and we found out that the worst possible outcome and and the thing with this situation is that now we're stuck waiting. We just wait now to see what happens. We just wait now to see how this will unfold. And while I'm sitting there just kind of upset and frustrated and trying to be really careful and really upset with God about why did you have me preach through Job when this happened? My wife said something to me. She said, God knew. Everything that happens to us is filtered through God. So I think I heard that recently. And look, here's all I'm telling you. Sometimes you get bad news. You say, what do you do? You wait. You don't speak foolishly. You don't make hasty decisions. You don't start doing things that are, you'll regret in the future. You take a lesson from Job and you are still waiting. What does that mean? It means you say something. It means you say nothing. It means you do nothing. And you should still be worshiping. What does that mean? It means that our focus is on God and not ourselves. It means that when everything falls apart around us, we fall on God. Let me give you a third thing. We'll finish up tonight. I said, number one, Job was still worshiping God. I said, number two, Job was still 
excuse me, Job was still waiting on God. Job was still worshiping God. Here's point number three. What was it that Job was still doing, right? Both God and his wife said, he's still, he's still. Here's point number three. Job was still walking with God. Job was still walking with God. I mean, notice what the Bible says, what they said. Notice what God says about Job. Job chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Has thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and is true with evil. And then God says this, And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. What's integrity? What's integrity? In our home, we homeschool, and we have a downstairs bedroom that serves as a homeschool room, a school room. And on that, on, on, on the wall, my wife has sayings and verses and things. One thing she has on there, a little thing for our kids to see every day, it's integrity is who you are when no one's watching. Integrity is who you are when no one's watching. Or you could say it this way, integrity is what you do when you can get away with it. Integrity is who you are when no one's watching. Integrity is what you do when you can get away with it. Integrity is what causes us to tell the truth when we could lie and get away with it. Integrity is what causes us to walk uprightly, to do right, to do right in our lives, to be honest, to not steal, to not cheat, to not... Integrity is who you really are. Because here's the truth. If you serve God while pastor's watching, or mom's watching, or husband's watching, you're not really serving God. You're serving as a man pleaser, as an eye pleaser. Integrity is who you are when no one forces you, and we learn this with Job. Integrity is who you are when no one cares. Integrity is who you are when no one would blame you. And the truth is this, if the story of Job went like this, all these terrible things happened to Job, and Job Job cursed God and died, the end You know what you and I would say? Maybe we don't say this out loud, but we might think it. Well, I don't blame the guy. That was pretty bad. That was pretty terrible. See, Job was in a place in his life where he could have cursed God. He could have charged God foolishly. And no one, no one would have judged him for it. But the Bible says, and God says, that he still holdeth fast his integrity You say, why? Because Job's walk was real. Because the truth of the matter is this, that Job was not just serving God because of what God gave him or did for him. Job was serving God because Job had integrity. Look at verse 9, same chapter. Then then said his wife unto him, Does thou still retain that integrity? He says, Are you still playing this game, Job? And Job would say, It was never a game. Job, you know, that whole three times a week thing. Yeah, we were doing that when you were employed and God was blessing you, but now that you're unemployed, are we really going to keep doing that? And Job said, I was never doing that because God gave me a job. Yeah, we were out soul winning and, and we were tithing and we were serving the Lord when, when our health was right, but now, now that you, you, your health is bad and now that my health is bad and now that these situations happen, I mean, we just still serve God and, God and Job would say, I never was serving God for those things. See, Job, you said, what was Job still doing? What was Job still doing during times of trial and heartache? Job was waiting on God, and Job was worshiping God, and Job was still walking with God. You say, why? Because of integrity. 
Job 13, if you would, just go there. We'll finish up right now. Job, Job 13 and verse 15. And I have to ask this question. And I have to ask you this question. And I want you to wrestle this question down. You don't have to give me an answer. You don't have to give anybody an answer. But you need to think about this question. What will it take to knock you out of the Christian life? What will it take? What could God do? What could God allow Satan to do to you that would cause you to quit, to walk away, to backslide, to rebel? What would it take to knock you out of the Christian life? Because the answer for Job was nothing. You know what Job was still doing? He was still worshiping God. You know what Job was still doing? He was still waiting on God. You know what Job was still doing? He was still walking with God. In fact, Job says this in Job 13, verse 15. He says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You know what Job is saying? Job is saying, God can do whatever he wants to me. Job Job says, God can even kill me, and I'll still trust in him. Because Job, through this, was still walking with God. And you've got to ask the question, what will it take to knock you out of the Christian life? Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, unfortunately, over the last 10 years of ministry, I've seen many people get knocked out of the Christian life. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be like Job. Sometimes things don't go our way. It's fun to stand up here and preach about all the answered prayers that you give us, but sometimes you don't answer our prayers the way we want. Sometimes, like Paul, we beseech thee three times, and the response is, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is made perfect in wisdom. And Lord, I I just pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us, like like Paul, to say, I'm going to glory in my infirmities. Lord, thank you for Job, who we not only saw him deal with difficulty, but he continued through difficulty well. Lord, if we need to wait, help us to wait. I know it's hard. If I need to wait, help me to keep my mouth shut, to not make major decisions. Lord, I pray you'd help us to continue to worship you, keep our focus on you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to keep walking with you. Let it be true of us like it's true of Job. If thou slay me, yet will I trust in